0: Hello again, if I didn't have a chance to see your faces when I said hello earlier, it's wonderful to be with you. Uh, If you're new with us this morning, uh, or maybe you haven't been in worship for the last couple of weeks, it's okay. We are doing a a sermon series uh, for Lent, the, the few weeks leading up to Easter, and it's called Meals with Jesus, a Second Seating. And in this, we are taking some some scripture passages that are very well known to many of us. Some of you grew up knowing these. You had the little felt figures and you know these stories so well. Some of you have read them so many times that some of these stories are just almost by rote now. That sometimes we can just gloss over them because we know the story and we know the word so well. But we know that scripture is always worth a second look, that we can never know it so well that God can't teach us something. And so we wanna come back to these well-known passages and take a second look to see what might have been there. That maybe it's been there all along and we missed it. Maybe it's going to reflect back to us in a new way today. So this is one of those passages. As I begin to read this passage, uh, you can go to your Bibles in a moment, but before we go to your Bibles, I'm gonna be reading from Matthew 14, uh, I'm gonna invite you to shut your eyes. I know it's sometimes uncomfortable, but just shut your eyes, nothing bad's gonna happen. Just listen, listen to this story. Go ahead and feel free to place yourself in it feel the, the rough waves, the, the wind and, and the water on your face? Can you feel how fast the disciples' hearts must be beating in the panic of the storm? Can you see the face of Jesus? Can you hear his voice saying something above the roar of the storm? Will you ask God to give you a fresh set of eyes today for you to be in this setting and for God to show you something that he wants to teach you specifically today? Listen to the word of the Lord, reading from Matthew 14, beginning in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking towards them on the lake. But when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified, saying, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately, Jesus spoke and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and started walking on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you want to turn now in your Bibles, Matthew 14, and we're going to be looking at this passage from 22 to 33. But before we start really digging into the passage, I want to suggest that there is a third character in the story. You know, we're, it's clear that Jesus is in the story, it's clear that Peter's in the story. But there's something else with such a presence that I actually want to personify it. It's so all-encompassing as part of the story. It has such power in this story, and it's the water itself. So I want to give us the freedom this morning to be just like C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien, and I want us to name this character in the story, The Water, Sure, we could call it the Sea of Galilee. That's its actual name there in Israel. But I'd rather call it by its ancient name. The name that was said quietly and often fearfully for generations and generations. The abyss, the deep, darkness, chaos in many traditions and even in the Hebrew scriptures, it is thought that the sea, the deep, impenetrable mystery of the sea is where evil spirits were. It was believed that beasts lived in the sea that could rise up and devour you, devour us. This was actually an apocalyptic vision that was given to both Daniel in the Old Testament and to John in the New Testament that the beast came out of the sea. This superstitious feeling, this fear of the water was ingrained. Listen even at the beginning of all things in Genesis 1. It says, the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Some theologians, both Jewish and Christian, actually believe that the primordial battle, the ongoing battle between God and the devil, is not one of good and evil, but it's actually one of divine order versus chaos, and that when the world was spoken into creation, when it was given order and purpose by God, that from that point on, chaos and mayhem wanted to get back what had been taken from it at creation. That that's the genesis of this larger than life battle. So you see, even as we begin this passage, it is already loaded with theological and symbolic meaning. Now, when I say symbolic, I do not want you to think that I'm about to lead us down a road where I say that this is a metaphor for something else. I believe that this is a miracle recorded in Scripture, and I have actually no problem believing all of the miracles recorded in Scripture. From the parting of the Red Sea to a cell door that swings open to release Peter from prison, I don't have any need to search for rational answers to what really happened. I think this really happened. And I believe that throughout time, God has been performing miracles that we can see to increase our faith. And he's been performing these not only in ancient history, but in our own lives to increase our faith. And so as we look at this miracle account today, what I want to do is see deeper meaning, symbolic meaning. So now let's go ahead and push this boat into the sea. It's the Sea of Galilee. And what we first notice when we look at verse 22 what we first notice is that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side. It says Jesus compelled them to get into the boat. They had no choice. He made them get into this boat on the kind of scary water at night, making it clear that He was not coming with them. Now, how do we know that it's night? Well, we can find this out if we just look a few verses earlier. Actually, go to chapter 14, verse 1. There's so much that happens in this chapter of Matthew. The chapter begins with news of John the Baptist being beheaded. This is Jesus' first cousin. And we have the story of how that came to happen. And then in verse 13, Jesus hears the report Of John the Baptist being beheaded, and he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. Except the crowds wouldn't let him be by himself. The crowds knew where he was going, and they ran ahead of him, and they gathered there. And thus, more than 5,000 people, 5,000 men, and God knows only how many women and children met Jesus at this deserted place where he had hoped to be alone. And now we have the setting for the feeding of the 5,000. Another miracle of God. How do we know that it's late? Well, in verse 15, it says, "'When it was evening, the disciples came to Jesus and said, "'This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. "'Send the crowds away so that they may go into the village "'and buy food for themselves.'" Now, you're all going to think I'm about to digress and start talking about the feeding of the 5,000. I promise you, I'm going to stick with the walking on the water. But there's something that happens in the feeding of the 5,000, something that is significant to Peter walking on the water also that we need to catch. So let's catch it. You see, at this time, Jesus has been trying to invest his disciples with the ability to do what he does Just a few chapters earlier in Matthew, he sends the disciples out, he gives them his authority, and not just a little bit of authority, not just to like, you know, say, oh, let me pray for your scrape and I hope it gets better. No, he gave them authority to heal the sick, to cleanse the lepers, to raise the dead, and to cast out demons. Demons. been telling them all along that what I see the Father doing, I do. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, what you see me doing, so you can do also. It's in John that it says, greater things can you do for the one who believes in me. Even greater things will you do because I am going to the Father. And so at the feeding of the 5,000... When the disciples urged Jesus to send all of this crowd of people away so they could get something to eat, Jesus says, they don't need to go away, you give them something to eat. Now, they've just been casting out demons and raising the dead, but they're like, we've got nothing. I mean, don't ask us to feed anyone, this is like how I am in the kitchen, this is impossible. They didn't know how to feed 5,000 people. They had no resources of their own, so they thought. And so Jesus, even though he tries to give that task, even though he says to the disciples, you can do what you see me do, he still is trying to ease them into this kind of responsibility. So Jesus makes his disciples. Now we're back at the boat on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus makes his disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side. Notice that Jesus goes up to the mountain by himself to pray. This is the first time since the testing in the wilderness, the temptation in the wilderness, that Jesus has intentionally been alone. Just think about how exhausting that would be to have so many people wanting a piece of you, wanting a moment of your time, This is the first time that Jesus is alone and he is up on a mountain praying. And just picture this tableau, Jesus up on a mountain praying at the same time that the the disciples are on a lake in the middle of a storm, rowing like crazy and making no progress. If you are ever in a storm, rowing like crazy and making no progress, will you bring this tableau to mind? Will you remember that you may be able to get more done if you stop and pray? Will you bring prayer into your circumstances? So how do we know that it's night? Well, we know that it's after the feeding of the 5,000, but we're told it says, early in the morning, he came walking towards them. Now, that's actually an interpretation of what the Greek actually says. The Greek actually says there, in the fourth watch of the night... It's kind of fallen out of what we understand that to mean. So they just say early in the morning. But the fourth watch of the night was Roman terminology for who was on guard. And the fourth watch of the night was sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. Middle of the night. Dark. Scary. It's at this time that Jesus came walking to them. Literally, from the vantage point that he had on the mountain, he could have looked across the entire Sea of Galilee. That's the kind of vista that you have. And he probably could have literally seen the storm, the thunder, the lightning. He could have seen the clouds. And he would have known that's where the disciples were going. That's where they were, they were in the middle of right now. And he sets off to be with them. So now let's go ahead and put ourselves in the boat with the disciples. 20, uh, verse 24 gives us very little information. It says, The boat was battered by the waves. It was far from the land, for the wind was against them. But I want a little more. You know, as we're kind of getting into the story of this, I want a little more description of what that storm at sea could have been like if you were on a boat. And if you're curious, you can go home and go to YouTube and look at boats on the Sea of Galilee during a storm. And you will see a whole bunch of videos from today. But here's how this was described in Psalm 107. It says, some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the mighty waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their calamity. Eugene Peterson, in The Message Translate, that last sentence, he says, You shot high in the air, then the bottom dropped out. Your hearts were stuck in your throat. They reeled and staggered like drunkards and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. This is the kind of storm that the disciples were in. Rising and falling, their throats thick with their own hearts, so scared. This is what they were in. And don't forget, Jesus made them get into the boat at night when storms usually come up without him being with them. Have you ever been really clear that God told you to do something? Like crystal clear, I know that God asked me to do this. Has it ever seemed ill-advised, badly timed? Have you ever said, really, gotten?" he says, yes, now, do it. Have you ever been in the middle of where you know God called you to be, right smack in the middle, and a storm has come up? Like literally the forces of hell kind of storm unleashed where you thought that you had guard- heard God called you to be. Has any of that happened to any of you? I know what that's like, I know what that's like in my fellowship, my following of Jesus, in times that I've felt suddenly like I've gotten out ahead of him, that I've been right where I thought he wanted me to be, but suddenly it couldn't be like this, like, it's just not this. And do you know what the first thing I do is when I know that I'm in this circumstance, do you know what I do? Anybody? See, pray would be such a good answer. I wish I could say that the first thing I did was pray, but it's not. The first thing that I do is I beat myself up really good. I, I just start saying, God, I am so sorry. I don't know what got into me. I must be so silly. Gosh, I thought I was listening to you, but I must not have been. I'm so sorry, God, that I misheard you. I'm so sorry that I guess I took a wrong turn. I'm just sorry God and and I hope that you'll forgive me and, and I hope that you can find me here. I've prayed prayers like that. In one very particular moment of my following of Jesus, it was actually when I thought he was calling me to ministry. I had actually started going to seminary and I was still working full time and somehow I thought this is what God was calling me to do but I tell you the beginning of it was like a storm. I'm not joking when I say there was a day at work when I was blowing into a brown paper bag because I couldn't breathe. And as I cried out to God, as I said I am so sorry, I heard such a distinctive word from God, a voice in my spirit that I knew to be his voice. I knew it was God. And the first thing that he said to me was, who told you you've done something wrong? Just because it's not easy doesn't mean it's not right. Doesn't mean it's not my will. And just because you feel completely lost right now does not mean that I don't know exactly where you are and that you are not exactly where I want you to be. I have heard God ask me in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the storm, what do you want me to teach you right now? And I have shouted back across the wind and the waves, how to be peaceful in the middle of chaos. And God said, are you ready to learn that now? Because I'd love to teach you that. Will you let me teach you that? Because in order for me to teach you that, you're going to have to stop rowing the boat. You're going to have to stop thinking that you're steering things. You're gonna to have to let go. Know that you're not in control. Know that I've got you. That's how I can teach you peace in the middle of chaos. Are you willing to listen to that? I stayed in school. I became a minister. It all worked out okay. God got me through that storm. You see, in the middle of the waves and the storm, Jesus is already on his way to us. Look at this. Early in the morning, as they were in such dilemma, he came walking towards them on the lake. But imagine the wind and the wave, the clouds, just they don't even know what this is that's out there. They've certainly never seen a man on the water, so they can't even recognize Jesus, even though he is now in their midst And imagine the noise of this, the sound of the the crashing waves, the roar of it. Imagine the screams of the disciples and it's at this point that Jesus interrupts the other two characters in the story. He speaks over the screams of the disciples and he screams over the roar of the water. And he says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. The phrase it is I in Greek is ego a me. Have any of you heard that before? Ego a me is the phrase which literally means I am. It's the same phrase that Jesus used when he said, I am the light of the world. The same phrase that Jesus used when he said, I am the good shepherd. The exact same phrase when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the exact same words, the name of God given to Moses in the Sinai desert when God started speaking to him from a burning bush. And Moses said, what is your name? And God said, I am. Ego a me, shouts across the waters. Do not be afraid. Jesus speaks these words, the very name of God, identifying himself while he is walking on the water. This is a theophany. What is a theophany? It's a manifestation of God to mere mortals, where you are like, oh my gosh, that is God. You see, this is the only time before the resurrection. While Jesus is in his physical body, that his body is not subject to the laws of this world. This is a moment where he wants no character in this story to have any doubt about who he is. He wants the disciples to hear it, but he also wants the deep to hear it. You see, he is a sovereign God. There will be no mistake that he is one with the Father. There will be no mistake that he is the word spoken at creation. The one who formed the chaos. The one who made it obey his will. This is him. The one who walks on the waters. No matter how important that third character thinks it is in this story, it's just never going to have a starring role. It's going to be silenced. Now pay attention to this. Peter steps out of the boat while the storm is still raging. The, I had to catch this. For some reason, when Peter steps out of the boat, I used to think that he kind of, like, things were quieter. Like, okay, it's calm enough, and I can now, like, call me out to you. And I used to think it was calm and still and peaceful and that he could kind of walk like a baby toward Jesus. No, it's still a raging storm. The waves are, are just huge. And I have visualized the stillness. Now there's no way of knowing what was on Peter's mind when he said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. There's been a lot of conjecture that maybe he was reckless, maybe he was testing God, maybe he just had a moment of arrogance, he wanted to do what Jesus was doing. No one knows why Peter did that But I believe that when Peter said, if it's you, let me come to you on the water, that it says, if he is saying, Jesus, if it's you, will you give me the ability while the storm is still raging, while the waves are still pounding, would you give me the ability to stand where you're standing? Would you let me put my foot in this teeth, the teeth of this thing? And Jesus says, come. I love the translation where it says, Jesus says, come on then, let's do this. We don't know why Peter asked to step out on water, but we know that he did step out on water when Jesus told him to come. We know that Peter took a few steps. We don't know how many, but he took enough that they said he walked on water towards Jesus. Peter was doing something that he had only ever imagined that Jesus could do. When Peter woke up that morning, do you think that he thought that within 24 hours, he would be walking on water? Do you think that was ever anything that he had prayed for? Why would he? Was it anything that was even within his field of view? Was it so outside of the box? There is nothing that Peter could have imagined to let him prepare for where he found himself do you realize that our lives can change in a matter of hours or days? They can be completely upended. Now stop and think about just how humiliating this must have been for the water, the third character in this story. I mean, it was already enough. It had to yield to Jesus. He is the maker of it. He, it had to let him walk on its surface. But now Peter, this mere mortal And I think that the waves got angry at this point. I think the waves got more violent. I think the waves enlisted the wind and said, we are not going to stand for this mere mortal stepping out on us. And I think that the storm got more violent at this point. It's at verse 30 where it says that Peter, when he was out of the boat, he noticed the strong wind and he became frightened and started to sink. Now again, see, here when I was thinking that this was a smooth, kind of uh, more of a calmer sea, I could imagine that Peter got out and and started walking toward Jesus, maybe a little iffy, but then what I pictured was that Jesus, uh, that Peter has this incredible moment of self awareness, right? Anybody else that he's like, oh my gosh. And I, and I picture him looking down at his feet. Anybody else picture Peter looking down at his feet? I picture him looking down at his feet on the water and going, I shouldn't be here and he sinks. That's what I always kind of had in my mind but that's not what scripture says. Scripture says that he noticed the wind. The Greek says he saw the wind. Now how do you see wind? I don't know about you, but I can't see wind when I am staring down at my shoes. I see wind when I am looking up and out. And so I don't believe that Peter took his eyes off of Jesus. I think that Peter was still looking at Jesus in the storm, in the waves, but there was something else in that same field of view, and it was the wind And now there's two things that Peter sees, two things that he's trying to comprehend. And at that moment, the wind became greater than Jesus. The wind took center stage. That's when the bottom fell out from beneath Peter. That's when he sank. When his troubles became bigger than Jesus. And it's in that place where we now have just two characters left in the story. The Lord and the deep. Light and darkness. Chaos and order. How many of you have ever seen Jesus from this perspective? How many of you know that Jesus? You see... Jesus will go to battle with the deep, with the abyss, with the storm for you. Listen to what Psalm uh, 77 says. It says, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. The very deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies thundered. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the mighty waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. It's this psalm that tells us in no uncertain terms, with your strong arm, you redeemed your people. Jesus goes to war for us. You see, before Peter could even get out his last word, Lord, save me, I think Jesus already had a hold of him. I think Jesus caught him even before he got the last word out. Jesus is a savior. He's a rescuer. He is a very present help in trouble. But then these next words of Jesus to Peter, I've got to tell you, they, they sting a little bit. He catches Peter before he sinks, and he says to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, these words just kind of hurt my heart a little bit, because right now, I just love Peter so much. I just can, can resonate with Peter, and I just wish that Jesus would just hug him. But see, I don't love Peter any more than Jesus does. Jesus loves Peter way more than I can ever imagine. So why would Jesus be saying this to one whom he loves at this moment? Is it possible that maybe he's asking Peter, what can I teach you here? You see, this word, when he says, you of little faith, it's sometimes translated faithless man. Oh, you faithless man. And that word faithless is the word oligopistos, Pistos means faith in Greek. That's the Greek word for faith. Oligos is a prefix. It's not a prefix that negates faith, that says, you never had faith. You will never have faith. You are a faithless man. No, oligos means small or little or not enough. Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you didn't have enough faith for this situation as he pulls him out, and then this word, doubt. This word in the Greek for doubt is used only one other time in the New Testament, just one other time, and it's used by Matthew at the end of his gospel. At the very end of his gospel, after Jesus has been resurrected, twenty-eight, seventeen. Matthew sends his disciples ahead of him to go to Galilee, and there he appeared to them. And it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. You see, do- doubt is not a theological status, doubt means a practical hesitation. It means that you're wavering between two minds what your rational mind is telling you, what your eyes are telling you, and what your spirit is telling you to believe. We are double-minded in moments of hesitation. So how can we possibly know how much faith we are going to need for the next step? How can we know If we are going to waver between two minds, even if it's just for a second, how do we know how much faith is enough faith for this day? I shared this story with my life group earlier this week. Something that came to my mind when we were looking at this passage of Scripture together. And they urged me to share it with you today. This happened in 1999 I had been working at a talent agency for about six years. I was the head of the children's division at this talent agency. And I had a number of kids from all over, but I had a number of kids that lived in Orange County. I had my kind of first family had five children in that family, and they were best friends with another family that had five children in their family. And all of these kids took dance lessons from a studio where there was a ton more kids. And uh, so... All of these kids ended up being clients of mine, and I had relationships with all of these kids and their families there in Orange County. One day, May of 1999, I was driving in my car, listening to the radio, and a report came on the news that said that a a car had gone and crashed into a playground, and that there were kids trapped, and there were first responders on site. I remembered thinking, oh my gosh, I hope it's not one of the kids from this one particular family. And just what I thought. And I went through my day, and I got home that night, and my phone rang, and it was the mother of this one particular family. And my heart went in my throat. And I said, are your kids okay? And she said, my kids are fine, but Sierra's dead. Sierra was the four-year-old daughter of the woman who owned the dance studio. Her favorite outfit for almost any audition included a pink tutu. So I went down there the next morning. I drove down to Orange County and I walked into Sierra's home, into her living room. There were many people there. There were friends and neighbors. The pastor of their church was there. And I can never forget seeing Sierra's mom lying on the sofa. She was clear she'd been there all night. And she was clutching a picture of Sierra that now was literally wet with her tears and the sweat from her hand. And when I walked in, she saw me and she, she uncrumpled the picture. And she said, oh, you knew her. You knew how beautiful she was. You knew how special she was. And all I could say was, yes, yes. I knew what she'd been through. She had gone through a divorce, a custody battle, and she put so much into wanting to have custody of Sierra because in her own words, she wanted Sierra to be raised to know the Lord, to love Jesus. On the periphery of the room, I started to notice that there were groups of people talking, some having a little bit of movement. There was someone that went over and turned off the TV that was on in the room with no one watching it. I saw her ex-husband, Sierra's father, come around behind the sofa and another man sat down on the arm of the sofa and her pastor knelt in front of her on the sofa. And her pastor said to her, I have some bad news that I need to share with you. And she sat up, completely dazed and staring at him, trying to make sense of what he just said, the words he just said, bad news. What could you possibly say that's bad news now? He said to her, we want you to hear this from us rather than the TV. We want you to know that the man who did this did it intentionally. It wasn't an accident. He wanted to kill as many kids as he could. And she shrieked. And she stood up and she was screaming, and it took three men to hold her as she screamed, I will kill him! I will kill him! I will kill him! And she kept screaming that until she literally collapsed. And again, her pastor was right there in front of her, back on his knees, saying, I need you to look at me. I need you to look here at me. This man is not your work. This man is in police custody. He is in the hands of a righteous God. This man is not your work. And then he said, tell me again what you most wanted to teach Sierra. And somehow she heard that question. Somehow her eyes got a little clearer and she looked at him and she said, to love Jesus. And he said, Do you think Sierra has any friends? Maybe some kids at your dance studio who don't know Jesus yet? And she said, yes. And her pastor said, this is your work. This is your work. To tell these kids about Jesus. I watched this woman take hold of this lifeline. I watched her go under the waves and I saw the strong hand of God come for her and take her up. What if God is constantly asking us, what do you want me to teach you now? What can I teach you here What if every moment of every day is a chance to increase our faith? What if the worst day of our life is the best circumstance for God to teach us how to trust Him, how to breathe into our faith? What if He's trying to teach us how to walk where we've never been able to walk before? What if he wants us to have the kind of faith that Jesus had when he went to the cross and laid down his life? There's a line from a film from last year, an Academy Award winner, If Beale Street Could Talk. And one of the characters says, if you've trusted love this far, don't panic now. Trust it all the way. Trust it all the way. The storm ceased when Jesus and Peter got back into the boat. And it says those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Those who thought they believed, believed even more. Their faith was increased. The water as a metaphor in this story is Whatever threatens to take you down, whatever threatens to pull you under, whatever wants to demand more of your attention than you're giving to Jesus, that is what the water can stand for. Or the water can be the means that God displays his glory in you. The way that God lets you know that he is in you and with you and that greater things than these will you do. The water is your best moment. Will you decide that you will continually keep your eyes on Jesus? Will you let God be sovereign over the wind and the waves in your life? Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our savior. God, it's hard, especially for those of us that are in storms even now, it's hard to thank you for the storm and the catastrophe and the calamity. It takes great faith. So God, would you meet us where we are With the mustard seed of faith that we do have. Would you meet us where you are? There on the lake. God, would you help us know that we are with you. That you are with us. That nothing can ever separate us from you. That you will never leave us forsaken or abandoned. Will you speak these words into us? Can we write them on our arms, write them on our doorposts? Can we repeat them as we rise up and as we lay down? May our lives be a song of learning to trust you. We pray this in the great and powerful name, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.